Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Emily Austin, and I'm a medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I am joined by Dr. Yvonne Ebay, who is a pediatric resident physician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Ebay. Glad to be here. I am also joined by Dr. Renuka Mehta, who is a pediatric critical care physician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Mehta. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. All right, let's get started with our topic of the day, status epilepticus. Dr. Ebay, could you briefly discuss what status epilepticus is and remind us why it's an important topic for us to discuss today? Absolutely. Status epilepticus is defined as any seizure activity lasting greater than five minutes or recurrent seizures without recovery to baseline mental status. It is considered a potentially life-threatening medical emergency due to the risk of neuronal injury and multi-system dysregulation. This dysregulation could lead to subsequent irreversible morbidity and even mortality. I see. So part of the definition of status epilepticus is any seizure activity lasting greater than five minutes. But not too long ago, status epilepticus was defined as a seizure lasting 30 minutes or greater. Dr. Mehta, what was the reason for that change? That's correct. The definition of status epilepticus was changed to indicate when to initiate urgent pharmacological therapy. Recent studies show that those seizures that will resolve on their own or respond to primary anti-epileptic therapy will do so within five minutes. So a seizure lasting longer than five minutes or back-to-back seizure without return to baseline are less likely to resolve on their own. And failure to return to baseline between seizure may represent subclinical seizure activity. So it seems that the five-minute definition is important for avoiding morbidity and mortality. That's right. The longer we wait to intervene, the greater the risk of failure of primary or even secondary interventions. This could spell for more devastating results. That's why in seizure management, we frequently say time is brain. It is important to have a standardized protocol for status epilepticus to prevent the delay of potentially life-saving interventions. That's right. How about we dive into a clinical case to showcase this? Emily, could you get us started? Sure thing. We have a six-year-old male brought into the ER by EMS for jerking motion and loss of consciousness, consistent with a seizure that occurred about 30 minutes ago while at home. Mom is at bedside and states the seizure lasted several minutes. According to mom, he still isn't acting like his normal self. On brief exam, you notice that he is tired appearing, not interactive, and seems a bit disoriented. As you begin your full evaluation, the child suddenly enters a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Dr. Ebay, where should we start in this case? Seizures can be scary events, but it's important to remain calm first and foremost. At the start of a seizure, you should briefly note the time at which the seizure began in order to keep track of the critical five-minute mark we discussed earlier. Make sure the patient is in a safe position to minimize injury. Then, as with any other patient, you want to make sure you get a primary assessment. The ABCDEs. That's airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. That's right. Although seizures are primarily part of a neurological event, it is important to understand that neurological dysfunction can result in multisystemic dysregulation. 
In other words, a patient with a loss of consciousness may not be able to protect their airway or maintain appropriate oxygen saturation. They may have autonomic dysregulation leading to hemodynamic instability as well. Given this potential for systemic dysregulation, you should reevaluate your patient frequently, especially at each major intervention, and this should be a team effort. Emily, can you tell us about the primary assessment of the patient? Sure. The patient is actively having a seizure, and the area is cleared to prevent harm of the head, core, and extremities. The patient is positioned to protect the airway with a jaw thrust and chin lift. I'm really worried about his vital signs. He has been hooked onto a monitor and he is tachycardic and his blood pressure is a bit low for his age. He has a fever with a rectal temperature of 38.5 degrees Celsius. Pupils are about 2 millimeters, equal and reactive to light bilaterally. His capillary refill is a bit delayed. Unfortunately, the seizure does not appear to be stopping as we near the 4-minute mark. At this point, you must recognize that the patient has met the definition of status epilepticus. Our patient has now had two seizures, one witnessed at home and now another one in the clinical setting, without a full return to baseline between those seizures. The current seizure is now approaching the critical five-minute mark with no sign of cessation. Now it's time for pharmacological intervention. So what's your go-to medication at the five-minute mark of a seizure? The initial therapy of choice is a benzodiazepine due to the rapid onset of action and relatively safe side effect profile. The medication works by inhibiting gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, by binding to and therefore blocking the GABA receptors. The typical choice is the intravenous administration of lorazepam. Dr. Ebay. What dose of lorazepam should we start with if this child continues to have a seizure at 5 minutes? I want to start with 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per dose of IV lorazepam. Great! Another first-line intravenous benzodiazepine that can be used is diazepam. It is often prescribed as a rescue anti-epileptic drug for home use. In comparison to diazepam, IV lorazepam is less lipid-soluble, which means that it has a longer half-life and longer duration of action. However, studies have shown diazepam and lorazepam are equally effective for intervention. So while ordering medication and waiting for it to begin working, what else should we consider? Continue to ensure that the airway is patent and hemodynamics are stable. Consider alternative airway management if the child becomes unresponsive. Alternative airway management tools include laryngeal mask airway or endotracheal intubation. Order an AccuCheck to rule out hypoglycemia, which should be corrected if present. Consider an isotonic fluid bolus if patient is in hypovolemic shock. Emily, what are the signs of hypovolemic shock? Vital signs would be concerning for a fast heart rate or tachycardia and a low blood pressure. The child might be cold to touch, the skin might appear mottled with delayed capillary refill due to poor circulation. That's right, Emily. In our patient with tachycardia and low blood pressure, I think a fluid bolus would be beneficial, especially in the setting of continued fever. Speaking of fluids and IVs, our patient fortunately was able to get an IV placed as soon as he presented to the ER. I know that lorazepam is administered by IV, but what about patients where IV access has not yet been achieved? Great question. If there's no intravenous access within five minutes, we have many options. 
intranasal midazolam, intramuscular midazolam, intramuscular lorazepam, or intramuscular diazepam are all options. Keep in mind that intranasal midazolam absorption may be hindered if a seizing patient has copious nasal secretions. Intramuscular versed pharmacokinetics also may be more reliable than intramuscular Ativan if you have the choice between the two. However, your best bet is to follow your institution protocols or get comfortable with both an IV and non-IV form. Administration of anti-epileptic drugs should not be delayed due to lack of IV access. Yes, these are important points. Now, what if the first dose of medication does not stop the seizure? Then what? Another great question. While administering the first anti-epileptic drug, it is important to continue to re-evaluate your patient, your ABCs. Always consider the possibility that your initial intervention may not be enough to stop the seizure. So you need to be ready for the next options. Typically, if the first dose does not work, you can repeat the dose after another 5 minutes. While you may prepare for an additional dose, it is important to wait the full 5 minutes before redosing a benzodiazepine. Too frequent dosing can lead to side effects of apnea and hypotension. While benzodiazepines are rapid in effect, they do need some time to work. If you think you will need further dosing, this is a good time to alert neurology for further recommendation in case intervention is needed. It's also a good time to have your resuscitation tools, such as an Ambu bag, available if you haven't already. Now, while we are awaiting medication response and reevaluating the patient, what else are you considering? At this point, I'm trying to identify underlying causes of the seizure by building an initial differential diagnosis. A brief sample history is a good start. Emily, are you familiar with the sample mnemonic? Ah, yes. Sample is the mnemonic to remember key questions for a person's medical assessment. S for signs and symptoms. A for allergies. M for medications. P for past medical history. L for last meal. And E for events leading up to the present encounter. Excellent. The sample history helps you build a targeted differential for any critically ill patient. It should be brief and should not delay other timely medical management. The differential diagnosis for seizure is wide and includes conditions such as CNS infection, electrolyte abnormalities, metabolic derangements, space-occupying lesions, intracranial hemorrhage, trauma, ingestion, or even medication non-compliance. So Emily, what is the sample history for your patient? His sample history reveals four days of fever on and off with the highest temperature around 103 degrees Fahrenheit. He has had some rhinorrhea, sore throat, and loose stools, and he's been laying around the house refusing to drink or eat much. He has no allergies, takes no medications, and previously has been an overall healthy kid. There is no personal or family history of seizures. His last meal was a few saltine crackers and a few sips of water this morning. Mom does not recall any recent falls or trauma to his head. He was lying in bed talking to his mother prior to the onset of the seizure. Great. So, Dr. Ebay, what is your differential diagnosis? Well, infectious causes are at the top of my list, including viral or bacterial etiologies. And more specifically, meningitis, encephalitis, or perhaps an abscess. Emily mentioned that he had a fever, poor appetite, and diarrhea, 
So maybe he has an electrolyte imbalance such as hypoglycemia or hyponatremia. And even though mom doesn't recall any falls, we should always assess for signs of trauma, especially the head. Accidental ingestion of a medication or toxic substance for the younger kids or intentional ingestion for the adolescent patients should also be considered. Yes, that's a great differential. Sounds like we have a good start on a few things to consider for further evaluation and treatment. Unfortunately, at this point, our patient has continued to seize despite his first dose of lorazepam. We're at around nine minutes of total seizure time. As I remember you saying, we can repeat the lorazepam dose five minutes after the first dose. Is that right? That's right. Same dose as the first. 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of IV lorazepam. And don't forget to reevaluate your patient after each dose for response to your interventions. So, this child is now requiring a second dose of IV lorazepam, but continues to have seizures, while there may be other underlying causes for the seizure that we are figuring out. Acutely, we need to begin thinking about the next line of anti-epileptic medication to decrease further complications. I see. In that case, if the next dose of IV lorazepam is ineffective, what is our next pharmacologic intervention? Well, at this point, you have a choice to make. A choice? Interesting. Tell me more. Well, remember that you should continue to evaluate the child's airway, breathing, and circulation and intervene appropriately. But in regards to the seizure, after 10 minutes or more of seizure activity, you should begin thinking about other non-benzodiazepine anti-epileptic medications. That's right. They are considered second-line anti-epileptic medications that have delayed onset of action but are more effective due to their long-acting properties. These medications are levetiracetam, phosphenitoin, phenytoin, valproate, or phenobarbital. That's a lot of choices. So what's the best one? There really isn't a consensus on the preferred second therapy of choice. Studies that try to discern superiority and efficacy between these medications have not shown any statistically significant differences. This is true. However, there are some factors that may make one drug more favorable versus another. For instance, levetiracetam, also known as brand name Kepra, has the advantage of availability in pre-mixed bag and shorter infusion times also causes less hemodynamic instability. It also has fewer drug interaction and contraindications. While medications such as phosphenitoin and phenytoin require pharmacy preparation or dilution, so may not be readily available in an emergent situation. Valparate may be contraindicated for those with underlying hepatic dysfunction or metabolic disease. It's best to know what is available in your institution or clinical setting. Most places should have a protocol or algorithm for guidance. The biggest thing to remember is have one of these medications in mind, know the dose and how to use it. You can always seek help from your hospital pharmacist if there is one available. So Dr. Ebe, let's say that our patient now has had a seizure a total of 11 minutes and we choose to administer levetiracetam, this finally aborts the seizure. But we still don't have a definite cause of his seizure. 
What are your next steps if you were the attending physician? In the ED or initial setting, I think labs and imaging would be helpful to narrow down our differential diagnosis. Agreed. So what initial labs would you order? To start, I would evaluate for severe electrolyte imbalances as a seizure etiology. A point of care, basic metabolic panel to check for any electrolyte imbalances is particularly important for a child that has had several days of ongoing fluid losses from diarrhea or vomiting. Electrolyte imbalances such as hypoglycemia, sodium, or calcium derangements are common causes of nuanced seizures in a previously well child. As I mentioned earlier, an AccuCheck for glucose level is important. Lastly, you can order a lactic acid as another quick assessment in your seizure evaluation. Emily, how do you think the lactic acid helps us? Well, I know that in emergency settings, elevated blood lactate levels can be helpful predictors of clinical outcome and mortality in critically ill patients, especially for those with sepsis or trauma. Yes, lactic acid is helpful to categorize how ill this child may be, but studies to support its use are not as robust as adult patients. But what about the glucose you mentioned, Dr. Ibe? If the glucose returns less than 70 mg per deciliter, how would you correct this? For glucose corrections in pediatric resuscitation, you want to deliver 0.5 to 1 gram per kilogram of dextrose in a bolus per pediatric advanced life support protocol. Your fluid choice will depend on what you have available. You can use 10% dextrose or D10 at 5 to 10 milliliters per kilogram or D25 at 2 to 4 mils per kilogram. 50% dextrose solutions are given at 1 mil per kg and diluted 1 to 1 with water in order to run through a peripheral line. Remember, in young children, 25% dextrose is the maximum concentration of glucose that should ideally run through a peripheral line. Be sure to recheck your glucose level after administering. 10% dextrose is preferred over 25% dextrose if the patient is not volume overloaded due to the risk of rebound hypoglycemia with the higher concentration of D25. However, children over 5 years typically tolerate D25 boluses and adolescents 12 years and older may tolerate a D50 water 1 to 1 diluted concentration. You may repeat the bolus or switch to a glucose maintenance infusion. Your goal is to keep the glucose concentration above 60 milligrams per deciliter. Very good. In addition, it's important to be mindful of rapid overcorrections that can lead to dangerous fluid shift and even precipitate further seizure activity. Dr. Ebay, what other labs may be helpful to order once we have stabilized this patient? Other labs to consider would be a complete blood count with differential, or CBC, as well as a blood culture to check for infection in a child with a history and physical exam that suggests it. A comprehensive metabolic panel is helpful to provide a formal evaluation of electrolytes, hepatic function panel, and biliary function. Don't forget your magnesium and phosphorus levels, as these levels may play a role in the levels of other electrolytes, such as calcium. You may find some clues about underlying metabolic or genetic conditions as seizure etiologies, particularly in younger children. A formal blood gas can give valuable information on acid-base status from a metabolic and respiratory standpoint. You want to pair this with a toxicology panel to evaluate for ingestions. 
Gotcha. Now, say you have a child with a known seizure disorder. What about anti-epileptic drug levels to see if the issue is medication non-compliance? Many children with seizure disorder may enter status epilepticus due to non-compliance or subtherapeutic levels. However, many anti-epileptic drugs such as oxycarbazepine or levetiracetam are often sent out labs that return inconsistent values related to confounding factors such as time from last dose. The utility in the acute setting may be limited by these factors. It sounds like history rather than labs may be your best bet here. We may worry about anti-epileptic drug levels later on in the course with the help of neurology. That's correct. Different institutions may have different practices or protocols regarding this. Let's see how our patient's history, physical exam, and labs drive our management. Okay, so the CBC returns with an elevated white blood cell count. So now we are worried about encephalitis or meningitis, right? Should we start antibiotics? Keep in mind that seizures can cause a stress and marginalization of white blood cells into the peripheral blood, resulting in an elevated white blood cell count. You'll want to clinically correlate the elevated white blood cell count to signs of infections. If there are signs on physical exam or symptoms from the history, then antibiotics should be started as soon as possible. We should order blood and urine cultures and then start empiric IV antibiotics as soon as possible if we're worried about a bacterial etiology. So what about imaging? Even if he has an infectious cause, should we still worry about head trauma or some type of brain mass? For our patients with a documented fever, no neurological symptom outside of this infectious disease course and no focal seizures or symptoms, you can treat the infection and obtain an MRI once the patient is stable. This will reduce a child's exposure to radiation. However, there are cases in which you can or should obtain an emergency CT. Should the patient have focal symptoms? suggesting a localized lesion, new neurological symptoms such as headache, without fever, trauma, or other signs of non-infectious etiology, you need immediate imaging to evaluate for life-threatening causes. I think that further hits home the importance of your history and physical exam. For our patient who had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure in the context of infectious disease course, I think we can defer any emergent imaging. Once the child is more stable later on, an MRI of the brain may also be ordered if clinically appropriate. Right now, I would like to get a look at the child's cerebral spinal fluid. A lumbar puncture will give us more detail on infectious etiology, since it could be viral, bacterial, or even fungal. I see. Okay, so we have stabilized the patient and labs are trickling in. What's next? At this point, medical intervention is usually coordinated with the help of pediatric neurologists and intensivists who should have already been alerted earlier about the patient for consultation. Most likely, this child will need admission to the ICU for continued monitoring and post-seizure management. That's right. This child will need to be admitted for further monitoring. Keep in mind that patients who have experienced status epilepticus are at high risk for more seizure activity, especially within the first 24 to 48 hours after the first seizure. Yes, and also, all the medications administered to terminate seizures are known to be quite sedating. So these patients will need to be monitored closely until he or she has returned to baseline. 
In fact, in some cases, there can be non-convulsive seizure activity that is clinically indistinguishable from sedation from anti-epileptic drugs or postictal state. Therefore, continuous EEG monitoring may be required to fully assess a patient after status epilepticus. You will also be working with your neurology specialist to determine if they need continued dosing of anti-epileptic medications, further imaging, and outpatient follow-up. For children already on seizure medication, their doses may need to be adjusted or the therapy of choice changed. And depending on the severity and results of EEG, the neurologist may put the child on a daily anti-epileptic medication. This combined and coordinated effort is essential for improving outcomes in children with that experience status epilepticus. So Emily, let's wrap up the case. What happened to our patient after we stabilized him? In the case of our patient, he was admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit with continuous EEG monitoring. He was ultimately diagnosed with an acute viral meningitis due to enterovirus, identified by fluid obtained from the lumbar puncture. Empiric antibiotics were discontinued and blood and urine cultures were negative. He eventually returned to baseline without additional seizure activity. The neurology team chose to discharge him on Keppra for seizure prophylaxis with outpatient follow-up. Thank you, Emily. What a great case to help our listeners work through. Let's briefly summarize what we've discussed today. Status epilepticus is defined as any seizure activity lasting greater than five minutes or recurrent seizures without recovery to baseline mental status. This definition reflects when to initiate urgent pharmacologic therapy. When a seizure begins, your first step in management is to note the time at which the seizure starts and keep track of the critical five-minute mark. Other initial management steps are to evaluate the ABCDEs, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. Clear the area around the patient to prevent harm of the head, core, and extremities. If not resolved at the five-minute mark, recognize that the seizure activity classifies as status epilepticus. The initial therapy of choice is a benzodiazepine. While initiating pharmacologic treatment, think about ruling out hypoglycemia with AccuCheck and consider isotonic fluid bolus in the event of hypovolemic shock. Always consider the possibility that your initial intervention may not stop the seizure and to prepare next options. Repeat the dose of benzodiazepine five minutes after the first dose. Notify neurology in case further intervention is needed. While awaiting medication response, build a differential diagnosis to identify underlying causes of the seizure. This should be brief and not delay timely medical management. At the 10 to 20 minute mark of seizure, initiate intervention with non-benzodiazepine anti-epileptic drug such as levetiracetam, phenytoin, phosphenytoin, or valparate. Consider your institution's availability and protocol when choosing which drug is favorable. Also consider your patient's past medical history and potential contraindications. Always have at least one of these medications in mind. Know the doses and how to use them. Of course, your patient's individual history, physical exam, and labs should drive your management. Point-of-care labs such as electrolytes and lactic acid may be helpful in ruling out seizure causes. If there is a high likelihood of an infectious etiology, consider IV antibiotics and lumbar puncture. 
After termination of the seizure, the patient will likely need to be admitted to monitor for any further seizure activity and to keep an eye on those sedating side effects of anti-epileptics. You'll want to work with neurology specialists to determine if continued dosing of anti-epileptics, imaging, and outpatient follow-up is indicated. From our discussion, I hope our listeners appreciate the multiple well-coordinated steps involved in the recognition, treatment, and post-seizure management of a child who presents with status epilepticus. But keep in mind that this is a generalized overview of status epilepticus management. We encourage you to review your institution's seizure and status epilepticus protocols and to keep up with the latest research and practices on management. Even at the time of this recording, new pharmacologic approaches are emerging. Thanks again, Dr. Ebay and Dr. Mehta, for joining me on discussing the acute evaluation and management of status epilepticus. Yes, I had a great time. Always a pleasure. An additional thanks to Dr. Suzanne Strickland and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Check out our show notes for more information and an opportunity to receive free CME credit sponsored by the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.